Thank you, Jerry. And Katie, thank you. Welcome back. Let there be light. <laughs> Not as quick as the original. <laughs> Open your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, and then put your finger in Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. We're going to look at parallel passages. Continue watching Jesus as he functions. And of course, Matthew is talking to primarily a Jewish audience, so he has some specific things he wants to emphasize. Chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this... Some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home. The man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to men. Now that's Matthew's account. Turn to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. I want to read his parallel account. Mark includes some more details. So does Luke, but we're not going to read Luke's account this morning because they're fairly close, Mark's and Luke's. Mark records, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he'd come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, lowered the mat, that, the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these thoughts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Isn't that an exciting account? What would you say, what would you say is the most distinctive message of Christianity? Love? Forgiveness. I submit to you, the most distinctive message of Christianity is the reality that sin can be forgiven. That's the good news. All men are sinners, are they not? Is there anybody here today that has not sinned today, <laughs> let alone this week? We all fall short of God's standard. God's standard is what? Perfection. We all fall short, despite our best intentions, don't we? But the Bible tells us, the good news tells us that people, people can come to Jesus and they can be not only forgiven of their sins, they can be set free from the very power of sin that governs their life. Is that good news? Every one of us have had something in our life, and maybe you still do, uh, this monkey on your back you can't shake, you just can't get rid of, and it's powerful. And the power of sin is strong. The Bible says that we're slaves to sin before we come to Christ. 
He breaks that power. He breaks that power and he gives us new life. You can be born again with a brand new nature and forgiven of all your sins. No more guilt, no more anxiety, no more fear over the past. We all live with regrets. There are consequences to choices. But God, when we come to him, we have no idea of how much he blunts, blunts the harvest of our foolishness. And he grants us forgiveness. Though our sins have been great, his grace is what? His grace is greater. So you can be, you can be free. If you do not know Jesus today, hopefully by the end of our time this morning, you'll see, you'll see the reason you need, and you will too, as so many of us have, come to Jesus and sought his forgiveness. Now Matthew has been focusing up to this point, over these last several weeks that we've been studying, we've been looking at various miracles. Now these are not just random miracles. There's a design, there's a, there's a, a goal that Matthew has in mind. And that goal is to demonstrate through these miracles Jesus' own authority and power over every aspect of creation. He starts off with disease. Jesus heals disease. He has authority over disease, power of disease. Remember, he healed the leper. And then he healed the, the, the man who was disabled, the servant of the centurion, the Roman centurion. He didn't even go to him. He just, with a word, healed that man. So again, Matthew is showing that Jesus, he is the Messiah. He's in fact God. And he's demonstrating power and authority over every aspect of creation. Disease, disability. He calmed the storm. He has authority over weather, over, the, over nature. Last week we saw him do what? What did Jesus do last week? How many were here? Anybody remember? Yeah, he demonstrated what? Power over demons, over the demonic realm. He took authority over demons. And he cast those demons, a legion of demons, out of two demonized men, demon-possessed men. So again, Matthew is according Jesus to the Jews, remember. He is your Messiah. Look at him. Look what he's doing. Look what he's doing. He has power. And he's taking authority over all these areas. And now he's going to deal with sin. Sin is our great enemy. The root of all of our physical and spiritual troubles, all of our misery, is sin. It's sin. It's this malignant spiritual disease that all of us, by very nature, possess. When we are conceived in this world, the Bible says we're conceived in sin. It rules us. It governs us. It's the very thing that's going to take us to hell unless we're forgiven and set free from it. That's the challenge. There is no philosophy, no other religion, no other system of thought created by man except Christianity that guarantees forgiveness of sin and breaking the power of sin and granting truly new life. New life. If you're sick of your old life, you can have a brand new one. Start all over again. A second chance. Doesn't that sound exciting? Yes, it does. Now, sin, remember, separates us from God. A lot of people profess to believe in God who don't really know him and don't have a relationship with him. If you recall, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, in that day, the last day, many will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff? And he says, what? I never knew you. Away from me. Not you doers of good, but you doers of evil. There's lots of people today professing to believe in God, and they don't know God. When I talk to people like that, I say, do you believe in God? Oh, yeah, I believe in God. I said, can you tell me about your God that you believe in? Can you describe your God? They're at a loss. You know, the big guy. You know, the guy up there. That's the guy I believe in. Well, what do you believe about him? Can you describe him? They can't. How do, we, how do we describe God? Who do we point to? We point to Jesus. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We point to Jesus to help people understand who God is and what God is like. We open our Bibles to him. We say, look, let's, let's read the red. <laughs> Just read what Jesus has to say. 
And when you read what he has to say, it's convicting to our hearts, isn't it? In his gospel, Matthew emphasizes a major theme with respect to Jesus. And we've already seen the word used a number of times, and that theme is authority. He shows us again and again and again that Jesus has authority. He has authority. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the very last verse of the Sermon on the Mount, we're, taught, we're told that Jesus taught as one who had authority, not as the people's teachers of the law taught. He had authority. He spoke with authority. As we just saw a moment ago, all through the, 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 the miracles, Jesus demonstrates authority both over the natural realm and the supernatural realm. All of his teachings demonstrate his moral and theological authority. He has moral authority. He has theological authority. That word is used again and again and again throughout Matthew's gospel. When you read the gospel, you watch for that word and you underline every section, every place where you find it. At the end of Matthew's gospel, in chapter 28, again, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. There's nothing that escapes his authority. And then he commissions his disciples to go out and teach and to minister in that authority. He delegates to them his authority. Go in my name. Go in my authority. In all of these ways, Jesus declared and he demonstrated his sovereign authority to rule. What did he demonstrate? His sovereign authority to what? To rule. And now he's going to demonstrate his sovereign authority to redeem by forgiving this man's sins. It's one thing to rule. It's a whole other thing to be able to redeem. Would you agree? Now, Matthew tells us that Jesus has come back from the other side. Where, what's the other side? Where has he been? He's been over in the district of the Gadarenes on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And the district of the Gadarenes is known as the Decapolis. There are ten Gentile cities. And Jesus has been over there ministering amongst the Gentiles. What did he do over there? He exercised what? Authority over demons. He cast a legion of demons out of two demonized guys. And they're sitting there in their right mind, fully clothed at Jesus' feet. And he leaves them there as what? Witnesses of him amongst the Gentiles. So he's come from the other side and he's come to his hometown. His hometown now is Capernaum. Where was his original hometown? Where was it? Nazareth. Now why has he forsaken Nazareth as his hometown? They rejected him. And now he's in Capernaum, his new hometown, his new base of operations, if you will, and he's staying with Peter and his family in their home. So he's come back. Mark says that a great number of people had come to the house when they heard he's back in town. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. So they're jamming the house. They're all around. There's no room left to access Jesus. Luke tells us in his account that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were there also. But they were there from every village in Galilee. They were there from Judea and Jerusalem. This is a gathering of the chief poobahs in Israel. They are there because Jesus is back in town and they are going to look for every opportunity they can to investigate him, hoping to catch him in some error, to criticize him, or even to convict him of wrongdoing. You see, they see Jesus as a threat. He's a threat to their power. He's a threat to their position. He's a challenge to their interpretation and to their application of the Old Testament. You remember when we studied in the Sermon on the Mount, you remember this phrase over and over and over again? Jesus says, you have heard that it was said but I tell you so the traditions of the elders all the understandings of the Old Testament laws 
uh, the, the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, taught them in a certain manner. And Jesus is overturning all those things. And he is telling them the proper interpretation and application of the Old Testament. So he's a threat to them. He threatens their understanding of the way that God works. They had God in a box. God only works this way. But Jesus breaks the box, and he's doing things they have no category for. He's healing on the Sabbath. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine? And he's forgiving sins. So he is challenging their understanding of the way that God works. He threatens their professional security as the guardians of the law because he contrasts his way of righteousness with their way of righteousness. In chapter 5, in verse 20, he tells the people, he says to them, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So he's calling them for a greater righteousness than the, than the religious leaders. So again, he's a threat to them. He's a threat to their popularity because his ministry is attracting the following of many, many people. They're leaving by droves following after the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and their teaching. Jesus is teaching things that amaze people. They've never heard before. And so again, a threat to the leaders. And lastly, they see him as a threat to national security, the security of Israel, uh, because of the popular excitement caused by his radical ministry and the fear that Rome hears about this radical new king and they come down hard on the Jews. Matthew says, as he was teaching, some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. Now what Matthew doesn't tell us, Mark and Luke do tell us in their accounts. They tell us that the men can't get their friend into the house to see Jesus. Why can't they get him into the house to see Jesus? Too many people, too many crowds. Can you imagine? You carried this guy on a mat, four of you, one at each corner. You're carrying your buddy on a mat. No telling how long they've carried this guy. They finally get to the house. You can't get anywhere near the entrance to the front door. And they just throw their hands up and say, we're too late. Can't get in. And they turn around and go away. Do they do that? No. I love this. How many engineers do we have here? Only two? Oh, my gosh. I'm convinced there was an engineer here in the midst of these guys. They can't get in the front door to get to Jesus, so what do they do? There's a, there's a stairway. All, all these houses were two-story houses typically in, uh, in Galilee. And you had a stairway on the outside of the house that went up to the roof. So somebody said, you know what? Let's go up to the roof and let's dig a hole into the roof. Now whose house is this? <laughs> it's Peter's house. The first pope. So they go up to the roof, they make a hole in the roof large enough to lower this guy down on his mat to get in front of Jesus. Now, if you're on the mat, would you, would you say, careful, careful, a little more on the right, a little more on the left, come on. I mean, he's lowering down two stories, my gosh. The guy can't walk, presumably he's quadriplegic maybe even, we don't know, we're not told. Would you agree with me that disabled people have always suffered some measure of social stigma and neglect? Yeah. We have a whole crew of, of disabled folks who we minister to, and we've done this for years and years and years, our handicapped and disabled ministry. But, but in Jewish culture, the culture of Jesus' days, the stigma of being disabled was made immeasurably worse by the belief that most Jews held that all disease and all affliction was the direct result of someone's sin. If you go to John's Gospel, John has this account where Jesus and his disciples are, are walking through Jerusalem 
and they see a man who was born blind. And the disciples make a point to ask Jesus, say, Rabbi, whose sin is it? Was this his sin or his parents' sin that caused him to be born blind? How many remember that passage? That was the thinking of the day. That sin, that, that, that affliction, disease was a direct relationship between your sin or maybe your parents' sin or maybe even your grandparents' sin. They would take it back generations because they would misunderstand the text back in, in Exodus when God says he will visit the iniquity of the father to the third and the fourth generation. They wrongly appropriate that passage. But nonetheless, this was the thought of the day. Now it is true it is true that affliction, pain, hardship of every kind are the result of sin in this world. Would you agree? We live in what's known as a fallen world. We don't live in a perfect world. We live in a fallen world. It's a fallen world because of what happened in the third chapter of Genesis when the first man, the first woman disobeyed God. All of creation was thrown under the power of decay, sin, brokenness, every human being, we live, quite frankly, in a fallen world. And then we're going to have problems. They may not have any problems this week. You ever have problems just come right out of the blue? You go, where'd this come from? We all do. We live in a fallen world. But our afflictions and our pain, our hardship are not necessarily brought on by some specific sin of ourselves or somebody in our family. Albeit... If you do something stupid, there's a consequence, right? So all of us understand that. Like his fellow Jews, this paralytic, no doubt, believed his paralysis was direct punishment for his own sin, or maybe that of his parents, or maybe even that of his grandparents. He's living with that. And that had to contribute, I'm sure, it had to contribute to, the, to, the, to the, his suffering, to his misery, just knowing this I'm in this condition because of my sin or somebody else's sin in my family. But this man was determined to see Jesus. You have to love this. He's determined to see Jesus. Should we keep our eyes fixed where? On Jesus. He's determined to see Jesus because he associated his paralysis, his very paralysis, possibly, with his own sin. And so his first concern now in seeing Jesus, what do you think is his very first concern? What do you want to get in to see Jesus for? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. His first concern is forgiveness. Why is his first concern forgiveness? You see, in his thinking... Though his theology is a little mixed up, in his thinking, if he could be forgiven, that would give rise to what? A healing. If he goes for the healing first, he's never going to be forgiven. He goes for forgiveness first. How eager are people today to be forgiven by God of their sin? How eager? Are people rushing into churches? Are people rushing to Jesus? Are people forcing their way in? Are they trying to figure out a way to get to Jesus for the most part? No, they're not. They're not. We live in a culture that is godless. Even, even our historic Judeo-Christian ethic is being shredded today. Nothing... Nothing matters anymore. There's nothing sacred anymore in our culture. I read an article recently this week describing religion today and especially Christianity. This is the Christianity. Let me describe this in a second. This is the Christianity that all of our young people are embracing. The author called it moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic Therapeutic Deism, MTD. It has supplanted biblical Christianity. This is what 
all this younger generation believe? Teenagers, youngsters, if you are a parent and you have young kids, you need to be regularly talking to those kids and finding out what do you believe? What do you believe? And why do you believe it? It may be eye-opening to you that most kids can't even tell you what they believe. Or if they do, it's some vague generality. And especially you have kids in the public schools today. You've got to be with those kids. You've got to be every day saying, tell me what you learned today. Tell me what the teacher taught you. Tell me what you're understanding. You've got to be taking care and marshalling those kids. Because this whole generation is growing up with a skewed view and a skewed understanding of who God is and what his purpose and plan is. This is the de facto dominant religion in our contemporary youth community today. MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism. It's a vague, vapid approach to religion, one that can be summed up simply this way. They believe in God. God exists. And he wants us to be nice to each other and to be happy and successful. That's it. That's it? Yeah, I believe in God. I believe in God. God exists. What does he want? He wants us to be nice to each other. He wants to be happy and successful. You find out what your kids believe. Nowhere do we hear in that, in that theory, in that philosophy, nowhere, no way do we hear about man's sin. Nowhere do we hear anything about the need for repentance and the need for forgiveness. These are crucial. These are crucial issues. God, not, he doesn't want necessarily a happy people. He wants a holy people. And a holy people are going to be a happy people, regardless of their circumstance. You know that. Go back to the Sermon on the Mountain, to the Beatitudes. Happy are those who. Happy are those who. Happy are those who. How many want to be happy? You better be holy first. Holiness. Holiness. If your life is a mess and you're not happy and things are just, eh, 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 you need to say, you know what? I need to get close to Jesus. I need to get holy. I need to start confessing my sins. I need to be forgiven. And you maybe even need to be for, born again, become holy. Now, although the paralytic's theology regarding sin and his relationship to his paralysis may have been in error, he was right in one thing. He was right in believing that his first and greatest need was spiritual. Our first and greatest need is always spiritual. It's not physical. It's not material. It's spiritual. Everything follows from that. Can you imagine what Jesus thought when he saw them coming down through the roof? Man, these guys are serious. He's teaching the people. And all of a sudden, dust starts coming down. He looks up, and there's a hole in the roof. He says, Peter, do you have termites? <laughs> this man and his friends are persistent. They are determined to get to Jesus. They had a strong conviction that Jesus could help. Strong conviction. Matthew says that Jesus saw their faith. How can you see someone's faith? He saw their faith. How did Jesus see their faith? Yeah, digging through the roof. They exhibited a, an aggressive approach to get to him, didn't they? He saw their faith. Here's the paralytic. On that mat being lowered to the floor. Two stories. Whoa. Now in Matthew's account, Mark's account, Luke's account, nowhere do we hear the paralytic saying anything to Jesus. There's no record of it. 
So the paralytic willingly and silently, presumably, exposes himself to Jesus, exposes himself to the crowd, and exposes himself to all the Jewish leaders sitting there in the front row. Would you be a bit nervous? What do you think? Oh, yeah. Remember, the Jews were afraid of the Jewish leaders, especially if they, if they began to be attracted to Jesus. These guys were antagonistic to Jesus. And there would be reprisals. They were very, very careful. So he exposes himself to Jesus, to the whole crowd, to all the Jewish leaders. He exposes all of his physical, moral, and spiritual ugliness. It's on display. Here I am. He may be fearful, but he's not intimidated. He's coming to Jesus. He's literally at Jesus' feet. He throws himself literally on Jesus' mercy. He comes in true humility. He comes in the poverty of spirit that God requires of a seeking heart. And what are, what are Jesus' first words to him? What does he say? He says, take heart, son. Take heart. Take courage. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus acknowledges that he's, he's afraid. He acknowledges that he's not at peace right now. Take heart. Take courage. The Greek word, thorseo, represents the courage that eliminates fear. This is a courage that eliminates fear. And Jesus says, take courage, take heart. Don't be afraid because you no longer have anything to be afraid of. Wow. Are those comforting words? He didn't have to be afraid. Now, what did Jesus say to him that was of supreme importance? Your sins are forgiven. That's of supreme importance. You can't say anything better to anybody. Your sins are forgiven. Those words represent a divine miracle that is perhaps the greatest of all miracles. Your sins are forgiven. I grew up Roman Catholic, and I remember as a kid growing up, always going to church or even in school, having to go to confession every Saturday, confess my sins to the priest. I was always a little worried that he wouldn't forgive me. <laughs> some of you may come from a Catholic background. You know what I'm talking about. You went in there with some fear and trepidation. If you said, you thought, maybe if I, if I say too much, if I really tell how bad I am, my bad thoughts, he won't forgive me. It was always a, oh, I got forgiveness. But I'd go pray a whole bunch of prayers to ensure my forgiveness. Penance. Crazy. Crazy. Just as a, with a word Jesus stilled the storm, just as with a word Jesus cast out the demons, with a word he deals with this man's sins. With a word. Your sins are forgiven. What a gift. What a gift. A gift to meet this guy's greatest need. Free gift. He doesn't say a word. Jesus knows exactly what he needs. He knows what he needs. Psalm 103, verse 12 as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Wow. The prophet Micah, speaking of God, he says, You hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Beloved, when God forgives sin, that's what he does. He doesn't remember them. He doesn't keep a list. He doesn't say, Oh, I see you did that again. I see you thought that again. Oh. He doesn't keep a list. He casts all of our sin into the sea of forgetfulness. Isn't that good news? Do we keep lists? Oh, yeah. He doesn't keep any lists. Even when you and I go back to him and we confess, we say, oh, Father, I did it again. He says, again? Again? He's forgotten all the other things. Isn't that glorious? Don't you wish you were more like him? Guess what? The more you become like him, the less you'll be keeping lists. 
of other people's sins. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that something to look forward to? Husbands and wives? Yes. The best news anyone can receive, the best news anyone can receive is the word that his or her sins are forgiven. You can't receive better news than that. And when he spoke those words to the paralytic, they had an effect on Jesus. What effect do you think Jesus speaking those words, your sins are forgiven, what effect might those words have had on Jesus? Can you possibly imagine? I submit to you, every time he said those words, your sins are forgiven, he tasted more of the bitterness and agony of Calvary. Because he knew every time he said those words, he would be taking that person's sins upon himself on that cross. If he didn't do that, those are empty words. So every single time he would say those words, every time he forgave sin, he would know and understand and think about the cost that was behind that. Is my, am I making sense to you? Now, no sooner had Jesus spoken these words, your sins are forgiven, Luke tells us in his account that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Jerusalem and from Judea all over Israel, the whole leadership of, of Israel was there, they start murmuring to themselves, thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Now, why are they accusing him of blasphemy? Because he's, what is he doing? He's forgiving sin. Do they think he's God? No. Who can, who's the only person that can forgive sin? God. So they're saying he's blaspheming. He is taking the place of God. He's using God's name in vain. He's doing only that which God can do. Therefore, he is blaspheming. Now, they were right in regards to the fact that only God can forgive sins. But because they refused to recognize his true nature and divinity, they could only conclude that he was blaspheming. Unlike the paralytic, by the way. Unlike the paralytic, the religious leaders saw no need for forgiveness. They saw no need for forgiveness because they considered themselves already to be righteous. Remember Jesus had said earlier, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They resented Jesus offering forgiveness. They absolutely resented that. It's blasphemy in their minds. Not only because they didn't believe that he was God, but also because they considered it unjust for a person to be forgiven simply by presenting himself and asking for it. Instead of deserving it or earning it as they believed they had done. You see how jealous they could be? How petty they could be? There are two great barriers to salvation. Two great barriers. And these, these have been the barriers ever since salvation could be had. The first great barrier to salvation is the refusal to recognize the need for it. Are you saved? Are you saved? Oh, I'm fine. I'm a good person. Leave me alone. Don't bug me. Maybe you said that in the past. Maybe you said, no, no, I'm a good person. You, don't, you did not recognize your need for salvation. If you don't recognize that need, guess what? You cannot be what? Saved. The second great barrier to salvation is the belief that it can be earned or it's deserved. Either way. And the... the the religious leaders are guilty on both accounts. And they would, their thinking would reflect and continue this on this road that would ultimately lead to his crucifixion. Jesus knew their hearts. He knew what they were thinking. He knew what was in their hearts. Their thoughts were evil, he said. In claiming to defend God's holiness... 
they really showed themselves to be utterly against his holiness because they're thinking evil of the Son of God whom they refuse to acknowledge. So then Jesus next poses a question to them. He asks them a rhetorical question. Rhetorical question is a question that doesn't necessarily need a response because he knows they're not going to respond. What's the question he asks them in verse 5? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or what? Take up your mat and walk. Which is easier to say? The former or the latter? The former. Your sins are forgiven. That's easy to say, isn't it? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, no doubt, had seen and experienced, certainly some of them, irrefutable evidence of Jesus' power to heal. But this is a whole different issue, this issue of forgiveness of sins. So his opponents, how do they respond? Do they say anything? They say nothing. They say absolutely nothing. But the answer to his question is obvious. Both things, whether forgiveness of sin or healing, both things are equally impossible for men, but they're equally possible only for who? Only for God. Only God can do these things. You see where he's leading them? The point was that no one but God could deal with disease with a word or to forgive sins. Even in their own distorted theology, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law should have, should have recognized Jesus as the Son of God. They should have been able to believe in his divinity. If, as they believed, sickness and disease were the consequences of sin, then removing the disease would be connected to dealing with the sin that caused it. Did that make sense? In their thinking, all healing of disease would have to involve at least some forgiveness of sin, which by their own reckoning, only God could do. So you can see how they're trapped in their own theology and by their own logic. They're backed in a corner by their own theology, by their own logic. Now notice verse 5 again. Jesus uses the word say. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or pick up your mat and walk? Which is easier to say? Is something easier to say than doing it? Yeah. Is it easier to make a claim that cannot be verified than to make a claim that can be verified? You see why he's saying, which is easier to say? The religious leaders had no way to verify, no way to verify the paralytic's forgiveness. But they were about to receive abundant evidence of his healing, which would force the conclusion that Jesus could, in fact, deal with sin. He's bringing it all to a climax here. Look at verse 6. So in order that they might know that he could forgive sin, which they could not see, he would do that which they could see. And he would deal with sin's symptoms, and that would be the man's paralysis. They knew all the Old Testament prophecies. They knew that when the Messiah would come, that the miraculous would follow the Messiah. It's all through Isaiah. And now Jesus is about to give them a special front row view of one of those miracles. They're all sitting right there in the front row. They're, they're there to convict him. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Wouldn't you have loved to have been there and, and hear him say, oh, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or take up your mat and walk. These guys are going. <laughs> Got to love it. If all he said were your sins are forgiven, 
no one could verify if that happened or not. Isn't that true? But to make the paralytic able to walk would give sufficient proof to everyone who was there and saw it. Just as seeing the 2,000 pigs run off the cliff to their own deaths gave proof that the demons had indeed been cast out of those two demon-possessed men into the pigs. Now the guys are sitting there in their right minds, fully clothed at Jesus' feet. Something happened. <laughs> now, as soon as Jesus said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home, what happened? He did it. He got up, took his mat, left, went home. He did exactly as Jesus said. Now, the command to rise suggests something, I think. And it suggests, because in no, none of the three gospel accounts that record this event, in no one of those accounts do you read any description of the actual healing that leads me to think that the healing had already taken place. When Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, at the same time he was healed. And Jesus says, now get up and take advantage of the forgiveness of your sins. You see that? He got, up, he got healed instantly. And he got up and he left. Not only have the religious leaders witnessed the miracle healings, not only have the religious leaders heard this authoritative claim to forgive sins by Jesus, but the crowd, the whole crowd in the house are eyewitnesses to this event. Matthew says they were all filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to men. Mark says, we have never seen anything like this. Imagine being there. You're going, whoa, did you see that? The word awe that Matthew uses comes from the Greek word phobeo, from which we get phobia. It's really fear. I imagine if I were there and witnessed that whole scene, the hair on my back would have stood up. Whoa, did you see that? They were all in awe, a reverent awe, a genuine holy fear. We have just seen something we have never, ever seen. Wow, did you see? The crowds, by the way, the crowds still do not get the full implication of Jesus' true identity. We know that because they think that the authority to forgive sins has been given to men, not the Son of Man. So they don't quite get who Jesus is yet. But Matthew, Matthew, for us, as we read this account, we recognize that in Jesus, an entirely new era has dawned. And that era is the age of forgiveness of sins, the very reason why Jesus was born. Go back to the very first chapter of Matthew in the birth narrative, when the angel is talking to Joseph about his wife Mary. And he says, she will give birth to a son, and you are to call Give him the name Jesus. Jesus means the Lord saves because he will save his people from their sins. Why was Jesus born in the first place? To what? Save us from our sins. What's the most important thing any person could have done for them in this life, in this world? What's the most important thing? You'd be forgiven of their sins. Our need is first and foremost spiritual. It's not material. It's not physical. It's spiritual to be forgiven of our sins. Would you bow your head, please? Much as these men forced their way in to see Jesus, they knew that he had the answer. They knew they had to get to him. It was imperative. 
And the same question I ask you is, have you forced your way to see Jesus? Have you been eager, energetic, enthusiastic, creative, saying, I've got to get to him? Because you realize and you know that you are paralyzed also. You're paralyzed, maybe not physically, but you're paralyzed with sin, paralyzed with real guilt. And if you bury the guilt and ignore it, it turns into anxiety and fear. Your life begins to come apart at the seams. You have no peace and no real joy, and you don't understand why. You may not realize that you're headed for God's judgment in hell itself. You may not realize it, but you are a captive to the kingdom of darkness. Maybe you've given Satan a place in your life. The solution is to come to him, come to Jesus, seeking first his forgiveness. You come in repentance with a godly sorrow for your sins. The Bible says all have sinned. We're all sinners. We're all guilty before a holy God. No one's better than another next person. We're all guilty of being rebels. We're guilty of breaking his laws. We're guilty of, of worshiping anything and everything other than him. We're in need of his forgiveness. Maybe this morning as you've come and you've sat there, you realize, I am in need. I am in need of forgiveness. I need God to forgive me. I have sinned. I am guilty. We're in need of his forgiveness. And though we are by nature, the Bible says, objects of God's wrath, but because he is rich in mercy and love, he offers forgiveness and new life to anyone who would come, to anyone. He gives the choice to you. He lays it out for you. He says, come, if you are weary and heavy burdened, come to me, I will give you rest. I'll forgive you and give you new life. Is there anybody this morning who is ready and willing to come in repentance, seeking his forgiveness and desiring a new life to be born again? If that's you, just come now. Just get out of your chair and come right down to the front. 